Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, February the 8th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. For some months now, the Irish Times has been publishing the findings of North and South, the series which we've been running in association with ARINS, that's Analysing and Researching Ireland, North and South, which is a joint research project of the Royal Irish Academy and the Kyo Nocton Centre for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame, or Notre Dame, if you prefer, or Notre Dame even. The series has now concluded, but we wanted to take the opportunity to look back at its findings and discuss what they might mean for future political and constitutional developments on this island. And to do that, we are joined again by the project leader, John Gary, Professor of Political Behaviour at Queen's University in Belfast, and the co-leader, Brendan O'Leary, Louder Professor of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania, along with our political editor, Pat Leahy. Gentlemen, hello to you all. Morning. Good morning. And uh, I suppose the question is where to start. I'm not going to ask anybody to summarise the whole project because it really, it really was enormous. But, but John, if I could go to you first, because the most recent tranche, uh, the final set of data published by the Irish Times uh, about a week and a bit ago, was about an interesting subject, which was, I suppose, really is about people's heads as much as lines on a map. It was about the two political entities in this island, the people who live in them, what they think of each other, and maybe even how well they know each other. Yeah, I think, um, this was a particularly interesting batch of questions because we could figure out how many people, for example, in the South had friends in the North or how many people in the North had friends in the in the South. So we were really trying to get at how connected the actual people were across the border. We asked about friends, relations. We asked people um, how often they travelled to the South. We asked about whether they went for a day trip or whether they stayed overnight. And the findings were were. Um, very interesting. The people in the north are more connected to people in the south than people in the south are connected to the north. And there's also an interesting uh, kind of geographical twist, which perhaps on reflection isn't terribly surprising, but it's quite noteworthy. For people who live in Munster, they, it's, it looks like they've never even heard of Northern Ireland. It could be on planet Neptune for all they know. They've no friends there. They've no relations there. They never go there. They don't seem to know anything about it. Whereas people in uh, quite proximate to the border in Connacht, Ulster, are much more connected to, to people in the north than um, people further away in Munster. And one of the things I found interesting about the poll, and this is one of the great things about us publishing it in the Irish Times, Pat, I think, is the reaction to it. And some people pushed back against some of the findings of, of the poll or at least at least questioned them. The poll does show, actually, it should be said, you know, that, you know, there are different lines of communication, as one would expect, as John says, between people who live, for example, in the northern half of the Republic of Ireland with, with the north, as opposed to people, people like yourself from Munster, who really seem terribly ignorant of, of Northern <laughs> Ireland. A couple of people of, have written... Of many things, really, but go well, on. Yes, well, we just added to the long list. But, um, I, I mean, a couple of people have written about this, including Mary Minahan, our, our, our features editor, uh, who's from Derry, and about the kind of very close relationships that exist between Derry and, essentially, it's, it's hinterland in, in Donegal. And I suppose the, the questions I was wondering is, some people have said to me about these results, well, they're not very surprising, are they? For example, the fact that people in the north have slightly more connection with the south is kind of a function of the the way gravity works in, in demographics. It's the same way as um, because Scotland is smaller than England, more Scottish people have been to England proportionately than vice versa. Is, is that not the way it works, that kind of a centrifugal force? Uh, yeah, I guess that's happening to an extent uh, as well. I, I suppose another weakness in the, que- uh, in the question, if we're being self-critical about it, is that it lacks a compar- necessarily lacks a comparative framework. So it'll be really interesting to know what those statistics were in, say, you know, 1970 or what they were uh, in 1920. But we don't have that information, obviously. So all we can do is put out the information that we, that we had. Uh, you know, as to whether people were surprised... Um, bias uh, or not, that's, that's up to them. I was surprised 
to be honest, uh, at the level of separation between the two societies on on a personal level, when we talk about friends and relations, you know, for instance, I, I would imagine if you polled uh, people in the Republic and asked them, you know, did they have relations in, uh, in, in Great Britain or relations in the United States, that much higher proportions of them would answer that they, that they did. So I think it is of a piece. I think that, that particular finding and, you know, I suppose we often say it's important to realize as much what polls don't tell you as much as what they tell you. But I, I think that that finding was of a piece with a broader, you know, the broader thrust of the uh, of many of the responses to the poll or much of the data in it, which did underline this kind of a broad level. You used the term ignorance uh, earlier, uh, Hugh. Uh, in 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 relation to people from from Munster, I, I I use the term in its in its literal sense, you know, in that like lots of people in the south simply don't know much uh, about uh, the north, and not alone do they not know much about the north, they don't appear all that interested in finding out about it, even when they are addressing the topical issue of how a united Ireland uh, might work. And, you know, many of them uh, are of the view that, you know, well, you know, people in the North will just have to get used to us. We're not really willing to make any changes to accommodate them in uh, in a united Ireland. So I suppose the degree of separation that we that those particular questions demonstrated is of a piece with that. Yeah, I should point out that when I was writing about this, um, uh, no disrespect to Pat, who is from Munster, that I pointed out I have no friends in Munster. So in, in theory... This isn't I'm, surprising, really, considering, you know... No friends at all. attitudes. I must emphasise <laughs> that a Munster-born person is here, myself, and I'm also <laughs> a County Antrim person. So it is possible to have co- connectivity. You haven't increased your friendship, Hugh, by saying that, your friendship <laughs> members. Um Geography does matter, and our data is not finely available at uh, district level. So I would predict that if we had even more data, uh, we would probably have many more connections between Louth and uh, the North. And I think our data is sufficient to show that the Dublin-Belfast corridor is significant. It would be very interesting to see uh, what... Uh, County Antrim is in relationship to um, other counties, so that we would have a uh, a sense of what you would predict purely on geographical knowledge alone, and what is a, uh, a result of the estrangement caused by partition. So, although I don't think the results are surprising, I don't think they should be uh, over exaggerated either. Is there something else that might we might try and measure perhaps in the in the future, Brendan? I, I was thinking about this, and along with proximity, friendship, family ties. I mean, so much of our life is, particularly these days, is spent in a in a different sphere, which is the sphere of media, entertainment, culture. What some um, writers and philosophers in the past in Ireland sometimes have called the fifth province, which might be a useful way of thinking about new ways of thinking about the the entire island of Ireland. And it seems to me that you know some of the divisions among the divisions between North and South are that we do or have to quite a large extent lived in quite separate worlds at times with those, the newspapers we read, the radio programmes we listen to, the TV we watch. I agree, Hugh. And with both BBC and RTE, there may be legal reasons that um, I don't know about in any depth, which explain why there are in effect uh, media silos it's, uh, it used to be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to get RTE inside uh, Northern Ireland. And it was rare uh, in some parts of uh, the Republic to get access to RTE. And that matters for comparative purposes. Ireland, uh, the Republic, tends to compare itself to uh, the rest of the world, including the UK as a whole. Whereas in Northern Ireland, uh, BBC Northern Ireland is very parochial and always compares in my experience, Northern Ireland with other parts of uh, the UK rather than with the Republic. And that would account, to my mind, for the uh, shocking levels of ignorance in the North about the comparative economic performance of the Republic, the uh, comparatively better performance of the Southern Health Service by comparison with the NHS, and on a whole range of, of other matters. 
So that's an area where uh, north-south connectivity, I think, uh, can and should be improved. Uh, The question of newspapers, of course, is much more difficult to interpret as a result of blocked legal regulation. You can buy any Irish newspaper, though the Irish Times does tend to be more difficult to get physically uh, outside of significant urban locations, but it is available on the web and it does have northern subscribers. But that uh, continuing uh, divergence in uh, newspapers on the web, I think, will keep people apart. And finally, on this particular first first point, John, if I could ask you, the other um, development which must have had an impact on these cross-border relationships, along with the end of the Troubles, obviously, which is a, a, a major factor, and the arrival of, of the EU, but is the change in the relative economic power of the two jurisdictions, that's, you know, if somebody was coming in a time machine from, from 1920, I think that's what they would notice, that the, the economic industrial powerhouse was in the northeast of the island at that time, and that is no longer the case. If there is such a powerhouse, it's along the eastern eastern seaboard of the Republic. Yeah, I mean, apparently the Republic of Ireland is very rich and Northern Ireland isn't, isn't so rich. That seems to <laughs> summarise matters. Although, anecdotally, rather than data-orientedly, if you're living in Northern Ireland, it often feels like it's cheaper and easier to live in Northern Ireland than it does in in Dublin, for example, where people get might get paid um, a multiple. As as Brendan as alluded to earlier, what's kind of important with respect to these polls and tapping people's knowledge north and south is, is to get to a stage where people have a pretty um, accurate understanding of certain things, whether it's health or um, economics, because I think you're right in your question by implying that one one of the reasons that people maybe a lot of people in the north didn't want to um, link up with the south is they thought it was um, much poorer and not very liberal. And now the world seems to have changed, and Ireland's not only richer, but it's um, quite a deal more liberal. And I think both of these things um, are. Uh, I, kind of to an extent came out in our survey and the more people kind of understand and appreciate them we think that might have an effect the more they think about them on overall attitudes to the south from the north maybe yeah i think i think that's very true we're going to move on to uh, we got a number of questions in from listeners so thank you for those uh, the first one comes from niall daly hi there politics team my question concerns a sentiment that is increasingly heard from some quarters namely that a 50% plus one majority would not be sufficient for a unification in practical terms. This is a hard sell to nationalists, particularly those in the North, who voted for the Good Friday Agreement on the basis that a simple majority in referendums either side of the border would be sufficient for reunification, not that it would require some kind of qualified majority with an implied unionist veto. Do you agree that stipulating that reunification should not happen until an arbitrary percentage of unionists are content legitimises a hypothetical threat of loyalist violence and encourages voters north and south to accept democracy potentially being subverted by threats of violence? Thank you. Brendan, there's quite a lot in that. Right. Let let me set aside the question of of pandering. Um, It's clear in the Good Friday Agreement, six times in the text, that... uh, a simple majority in the North is sufficient for Irish reunification. And that is matched in the South by the reference to democratic support. If that provision had not been in the Good Friday Agreement, the Good Friday Agreement would not have had sufficient support in the North to pass to the extent that it did. So it would be unreasonable and unjust, in my view, to shift the goalposts. It would be unjust because it would mean that in uh, weighing votes, pro-union votes would weigh more than uh, uh, pro-reunification votes, and that can't be right. It's also been constant UK policy since the formation of Northern Ireland to say that its existence as part of the United Kingdom rests on the will of a majority, first decided by its parliament and then decided by its people. If we look at UK practice on referendums, the Welsh National Assembly came into being on a 50.5% vote on a 50% turnout. 
if we look at Brexit, quotation marks, that went ahead on the basis of 52% to 48%. So any change in the rule for Northern Ireland would, I think, be regarded as deeply unjust and would be deeply destabilizing. International practice in this area is very clear. Self-determination in most cases takes place on the basis of a simple majority in the relevant defined unit. Now, it is not the message of uh, this set of surveys, nor is it the message of Aaron's, that uh, politics should be based on uh, just getting to 50% plus one. It's clearly the uh, implied lesson of these surveys that if you want to get adequate support for a united Ireland to achieve losers' consent, a great deal of preparatory work has to be done in the Republic and a great deal has to be done to assure the potential losers, who include unionists and loyalists, that uh, much will be done to accommodate them so that uh, losing will not mean losing everything. Uh, they will not be expropriated. They will um, have freedom to march in orange parades if that is their wish. Uh, they will not have their British citizenship taken away from them. Uh, depending on the model of a United Ireland, there could, could be a continuing United Ireland. And if not, there will be a very adequate proportional representation of Northern interests in a United Ireland Parliament. So, uh, in short, I think the majority rule is here to stay. That's legally appropriate, constitutionally entrenched and just. The question is, how does one build adequate support for unification? And the tone of the question implied that uh, somehow uh, we shouldn't be pandering. I, I agree, we, but we shouldn't be pandering on either side. Our, our surveys show that the project of Irish reunification requires deep strategic thought. I think Brendan has answered that pretty comprehensively, Pat. But I did notice with some interest, you know, you see these debates continuing on the letters page of our newspaper in the wake of these results. And one letter writer a few days ago was singing the praises of the Opsal Commission. There have been no shortage of, you know, seminars and commissions and committees over the years looking at these constitutional issues, including well before the uh, the Good Friday Agreement. And the Opsal Commission, which was praised on one day, was attacked on another day because the Opsal Commission was actually one of those that had recommended that a majority of unionist voters, effectively a unionist veto, should be required before reunification. That was taken off the table, as Brendan says, wasn't it, nearly three decades ago, and it's not coming back. It's very difficult to see it um, coming back for uh, many of the reasons that Brendan outlines. I don't think there's the political... Uh, I don't think there'd be the political will to do that. That having been said, uh, I mean, I think it was Seamus... Malin, towards the end of his life, used to talk about the idea of parallel consent. And of course, that parallel consent doesn't necessarily have to be doesn't necessarily have to be given in 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 the ballot box. A loser's consent, as Brendan has outlined um, in his remarks a few moments ago there, and also in the articles that he did to uh, as part of uh, of the series, a uh, loser's consent amongst. Uh, the unionist community is as necessary to make the project of unification uh, a, a success. And I, I suppose, you know, there are two, you know, there's two questions, I suppose, about a united Ireland, you know, if, if you know, if that is your desire. One is how to bring it about but the other much more difficult one, and that's simply a matter of electoral arithmetic, but the other much more difficult one is about how to, uh, how to make it a success. And, um, and that will not be done without the, uh, the consent of at least, you know, a, a, a majority and, and probably a great majority of, of unionists uh, to the process to the democratic process and to extend their losers' consent to it if that, is, um, uh, if, if that is what happened. There is a related uh, rabbit hole that we probably shouldn't go down, but it's about the reform, the uh, other reforms that might be necessary in the Good Friday Agreement. The structure of Northern society is very different now to what it was in 1998. And, uh, and it, it, it seems to me that if there is a, you know, if there is a an argument for revisiting the provisions of the Good Friday Agreement, then 
that is where they might start to take account of the the third rising force, the, the neither's, the many of them alliance well, voters. Sorry, and so forth. sorry to put a, a fact check on that, Pat. Um, the proportion of people voting nationalist in the Northern Ireland Assembly election, according to estimates done by John Gary, Jamie Poe, and myself. Uh, was roughly uh, 42%, and the proportion voting unionist was uh, roughly 42%. Uh, the remainder voted other. That is not a huge rise in the others. We should not exaggerate the rise of the others. What is interesting about the others is the consolidation of the Alliance Party as the largest party among the others. And yet that party itself is divided when you examine their, the preferences of the people who support it. It's divided three ways between those who don't know about the future, those who are pro-union, who are the larger group, um, or those who are pro-unification. So we should not, I think, exaggerate or talk about seismic change in, in the North in terms of the distribution of the blocks. It's a slow tectonic change, if it's a change yeah. at all, is it? Yeah. Is that fair to say? Yes. Right. We're going to move on to another question here, um, and it comes from Daniel Daly. John, maybe you could take this. Daniel asks, how do we think that attitudes towards reunification would change if Scotland became independent? Well, I'm sure it would have a, a big effect. We don't have direct um, data on this, unfortunately, so we're, we're we're speculating. But almost certainly, this would be uh, a blow to Britishness, um, broadly defined, because it would be hard to see what was what was what was really Britain anymore if Scotland um, disappears from from Britain. You're left with England and Wales, and given that the the, the identity of uh, many Northern Protestants is is Britishness, the very concept of that would would take um, a bit of a, a blow, one might imagine. And one might speculate that there could be a bit of a morphing of, of identity by such people into perhaps Ulster identity, which used to be at least somewhat prevalent, or, or Northern Irishness um, as an identity choice. Um, without, you know, I suppose there's a couple of reactions that people from a unionist perspective could have if, if Scotland disappears. It could um, it could be you know really quite discombobulated and quite upset and kind of um, feel that the thing that they're loyal to and feel a part of is 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 crumbling and their views might harden as a consequence of that against the United Ireland or they might take a slightly different view and think well hmm I don't know the thing the thing we belong to is is kind of crumbling a bit let's have a look south at the border to see um, to see how we can shape that. But um, I'd rather have asked questions on this and be able to report some facts uh, rather than my speculative ramblings. I have no such concerns, Pat. So I'm going to I'm going to ask you this because I mean I know and having been if you if you find yourself in parts of North Antrim, um, in everything from culture to accent to um, religious faith, um, there is a very very close tie, much closer tie between many people in those parts of the island and people across the water in parts of Scotland than there is between those people and people in your county of Tipperary, for example. So I think there would be a sense of cultural dislocation as well as the loss the deep loss of the symbolism of Britishness you know, that, that, that is connected through, through Scotland to Northern Ireland. Also, the ultra-Scots identity, you know, there's a reason why it includes the word Scots. Unusually, I agree with you uh, on, this, uh, on this, Hugh. And, and also, I'm untroubled by the lack, of, uh, the lack of, of, of data, which worries John, because at least it means that Brendan can't contradict us. But my view is, is close to yours, uh, Hugh, that it would be a kind of a psychologically destabilizing blow for many people in, uh, in, in the unionist community. But I'm also of the view that the hard Brexit pursued by the UK means that an independent Scotland is much, much less likely now because it would involve the Scots voting for an economic border on the Tweed. And I just don't see that happening. Now, it is possible, I suppose, to look further down the line and look at a Labour government that I think will pursue much closer economic links. I don't think it would rejoin the single market, at least in the medium term, but it would look at much uh, closer economic links uh, with the um, w- with the EU, or at least to remove some of the barriers to trade that the hard Brexit has introduced uh, in the UK. And that could alter the picture, I guess, down the line. But for the immediate future, I think there's no prospect of, an independ- of Scotland voting for independence. It has been an attractive notion for some nationalists, Brendan, hasn't it? The idea that 
that reunification would take place or maybe even be accelerated by the, the collapse of the United Kingdom as a whole. Um, I, I sort of agree with Pat that that seems less likely than some suggest. I don't know what your thoughts are. I think it's deeply involved in uh, British party politics. If you think about the Conservative Party, its reputation is uh, over the very long run that it has its ruthless eye on the main chance and on keeping power. It's not displaying that uh, very vividly in the last few years. Indeed, it looks likely to lose government. But imagine that Labour is in charge. It's Labour that is the champion of devolution, not the Conservatives. And it's Labour who strongly wants Scotland to remain in the United Kingdom. What happens if the Tories, in effect, become downsizers, if they decide that their best chance of returning to power in the UK is to let Scotland have a referendum? After all, it's the Conservatives who allowed a referendum on the subject in the first place. So we we have to allow for that possibility and we have to allow for the possibility that the Conservatives might just decide that they are the party of English nationalism. The relationship between Scotland and Northern Ireland is complicated and it's not just uh, uh, Ulster Scots who have those relationships. It's also uh, Northern uh, Gales and Catholics in the Glens of Antrim. What I would say is this, the Labour Party... um, historically has been more favourable to Irish nationalists than one might otherwise have expected. But on the Scottish question, Labour is unified in wanting to avoid uh, Scotland's secession. And that means that there are uh, messy complexities here. Northern Ireland has a right to unify with the Irish Republic in a referendum every seven years. Scotland has no right under the UK constitution as presently constituted according to its Supreme Court to vote on the question, even if it has a majority in its parliament in favour of the question, and even if the polls uh, were consistently to show uh, well over 50% plus one in favour of independence. Now, in my view, that's not... um, a stable scenario. Uh, the Scots cannot be held at bay forever on the grounds that Westminster decides. You will recall it was part of our history that home rule denied for a very long time was the cause of our, one of the causes of our insurrection in 1916. I'm not predicting the same in Scotland, but it can't be the case that the UK can keep the lid on the Scottish aspiration without a second referendum forever. Mm, that's a very interesting. We'll we'll leave that thought there, and we're going to take a break. But just before we do, just to remind you that if you want to read all the data and all the articles and all the analysis, some of it rooted in actual data and some of it by Pat, um, you'd really need a subscription to IrishTimes.com. Just go to IrishTimes.com/slash subscribe and uh, sign up there at a very reasonable price. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back after this. And you're very welcome back. I'm Hugh Linehan, still here with Brendan O'Leary, Pat Leahy and John Geary. We're discussing the North-South, North and South project at the Irish Times in association with Aaron's. We have a question in from Thomas Hennehan. So I just have two questions in relation to the practicalities, I suppose, of a United Ireland in the future if it happens. The first is just education. And is there any indication that we need to be moving a lot faster on divestment of state schools from religious organisations, particularly if we're going to make space for the various communities, both North and South, going forward in an all-island education system. And then just the second is on uh, our blood donation structures. Obviously, the North has their own organisation and the South have ours. And while they work together quite well, I imagine, um, they obviously have different rules and different policies. And I believe the Northern one is under the NHS, whereas ours uh, isn't under the HSC. Um would those have to come together as one formal organisation, align all their rules and policies, or could they continue on two separate footings as two different organisations going forward? Thanks a million. John, to to paraphrase Michael Gove, uh, we've all had enough of bloody experts, but we don't have any blood experts on this particular podcast, so I don't think we'll answer that question. But I think the broader thrust of the question is about these two very large, very complex systems, one that runs the education systems north and south of the border, and ones that run essentially the health systems. And knitting them together is not an easy task. In fact, very far from it. You know, no matter where you live, you know how complicated those things are at this point. Yeah, they're very complicated. But despite the complexity, we asked some uh, blunt questions uh, in our survey, which can shed a little bit of, of light on this. We asked um, 
a couple of questions about education and different education systems in our in our survey. We didn't we didn't have space to describe them in any of the articles, but we asked respondents both north and south if they'd be more or less likely to vote for United Ireland under certain educational system conditions. And in one of the questions we said, imagine a United Ireland and it promoted a publicly owned and funded school system that made no religious distinctions between uh, in, in education. Would that make you more or less likely to vote for United Ireland? And we asked a second question is, imagine there was a United Ireland and schools were funded, including those with a religious ethos. So we basically got respondents to reflect on a, a secular versus a religious education system. And the most interesting point to come out is that amongst Protestants in Northern Ireland, they were more likely to be at least a little bit favourable towards a United Ireland under the context of an educational system which didn't make any religious distinctions. So there was um, a greater percentage of them who said, yeah, it might make me a little bit more likely to vote for United Ireland if it was that particular type of education rather than, than any other one. Um, I think that's interesting. I'm not entirely certain how to interpret it, but it might be it might be because they would think if if a, if in the United Ireland there wasn't any religious distinction in schools, then there wouldn't be any particular religious group dominating the educational system, and therefore, if, if Protestants are in a minority in the United Ireland, they wouldn't be kind of swamped in some way by one. The education system wouldn't be dominated by one thing, and they'd be in a minority. So that might be the thing. I mean, the, the other point that should be made is that the state education sector, primary and secondary education sector in Northern Ireland, is where most, most people from a Protestant background go to. You know, there's a divided education system, but the state system is where most, most Protestant uh, pupils go to, not exclusively, of course. Yeah, and it would have been nice to have, in, in, have included more questions, because the real divide in, in Northern Ireland is really, you, do you go to a grammar school or do you not go to a grammar school? Um, that's the big class divide in Northern Ireland. It's also a division that's quite handy to predict political attitudes. So, for example, if you want to understand why why Protestants were in favour of Brexit, um, well, the ones who went to a, um, a grammar school weren't in favour of it. Uh, the ones who didn't go to a grammar school were. So it's a it's a it's a political. Distinguished. Yeah, which is similar to numbers that we'd see in the United Kingdom and England and, 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 and Wales and elsewhere as well. Pat, what do you make of these big questions of fitting these things together? Well, I suppose a couple of points occurred. The first is that they are uh, undoubtedly complex, but the knitting together of administrative systems and systems of administering public services and so forth, it may be complex, but it is not, you know, over a period of time beyond the wit of man, uh, I, I would have thought. I mean, there's a broader uh, question, I, I suppose, about the model of a united Ireland that might, were there to be majority support in both jurisdictions uh, for us, the model that you then might choose. And we sketched out uh, two models that I know Brendan can talk about at length, one being a, uh, a unitary state and the other being a devolved model, whereby Northern Ireland would continue to exist, but as a uh, an entity with devolved power, power being devolved from Dublin rather than London. And that seems to me might be a, a way to assuage the anxieties of uh, of unionists, at least for an interim period, that you know those unionists who fear a united Ireland and what it would mean for exactly those sort of things, like health services, is is, is another huge factor for people in the north, which we haven't discussed, but also, uh, but also education, and uh, that that those institutions and other institutions of state as currently exist would continue to exist um, for at least uh, uh, an interim period. Um, so, I, you know, look, um, I, I guess that's something that didn't, uh, you know, that we didn't discuss in any great detail over the course of the series, but it seems to me it's something that might be fruitful for further discussions. And Brendan, I want to put that to you. And actually, in doing so, I want to actually put another question, which we have audio from. This question is from David Carroll. Hi, Hugh. David Carroll here. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I'm an Irish Times subscriber, you'll be glad to hear. And I'm a passionate believer in a United Ireland. 
Despite ongoing failures in areas like health and housing, consistent surveys have shown Irish people to be happy with the state we live in, and we're regularly rated as one of the best places in the world in which to live. I don't believe voters in the South, myself included, will ever have any interest in implementing significant change here in order to accommodate any minority grouping that might want to join our state. So, does the panel accept, therefore, that a united Ireland will only happen when sufficient numbers in the North are happy to join the southern state as it is, warts and all? And until that time, most voters here will be happy to carry on as we are. Now, Brendan, David lays out a, a point of view which seems to come on quite strong support, particularly in, in the South, from, from your data, which is, yes, they'll just become part of Ireland and Ireland will proceed unhindered as it has done hitherto. Um, that seems to me to be a, uh, a block to progress, if anything. Uh, thank you, Hugh. If I could go back first to education, and I would promise to return to that uh, the question you've just posed by David. On education, technically what we were doing was testing people's general disposition towards integrated education or consociational education. In integrated education, the state funds um, a common system. Everybody goes to the same schools. We can all understand that. In the consociational system, which Ireland has had, north and south, each religious denomination gets equal funding from the state. Uh, that wasn't always true in the north, but Protestant schools have been funded in the south uh, persistently since partition and still are. So what we were doing was testing people's uh, favorability towards uh, those general models. And we find a general preference um, slightly higher for integration. And I think that's interesting. So we weren't directly asking them in this question to compare uh, a united Ireland with no Northern Ireland with a united Ireland in which Northern Ireland persists. Uh, and that's point one. We would love to do more detailed work. And I think my friend and colleague, John Gary, has it on, on the head. The key difference between systems is that the Southern system, broadly speaking, is comprehensive in nature. In consequence, far more people uh, graduate from what Americans call high school in the South at, at 17 uh, with uh, some important uh, level of qualification. In the North, too many people still qualify without any educational certification or credentials at all. And that's particularly concentrated these days among working class Protestant boys. And that is one of the grave inequalities that needs to be addressed by public policy uh, now and uh, well before uh, unification. And if it is a problem at, at unification, it too has to be addressed at that juncture. And the easiest way to address that would be through uh, an integrated system. Now, to the, um, the question posed by David. Well, actually, under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, the question posed does involve the North joining the South. It, there's nothing in the Good Friday Agreement that says anything about the formation of a new state. He may uh, be thinking that the changes that some people envisage, including myself, would be ones that would be unwelcome in the South. Uh, changes to the national anthem, changes to the preface to the constitution, uh, changes to the flag, uh, changes to the way perhaps schooling is run. Maybe all these things are unwelcome to uh, David. But he has to ask himself, if he is in favor of a united Ireland, um, why he would want to make it more difficult for a united Ireland to occur. And uh, the obvious uh, difficulty uh, for many Northern Protestants is the, the fear that a united Ireland would involve the extinction of their British identity, their loss of British citizenship, uh, and their loss of a whole series of connections uh, to, the, to the British polity, including the Commonwealth. Most of the uh, quotation marks, concessions, close quotation marks, that are required of the South, in my view, are minimal if they are properly understood. The Commonwealth is not the British Commonwealth anymore. It's not even clear that the next head of the Commonwealth will be uh, King William III. 
uh, it's not clear that, well, by, by 10 years' time, there may be a very, very small number of monarchies left in the Commonwealth. And the Commonwealth offers an opportunity for Irish athletes to win medals uh, at a much greater rate than they might win if they participated in the Olympics. Rejoining the Commonwealth should be a no-brainer. The reason it isn't is that leaving the Commonwealth is associated with our sovereign independence because the British forced us into the Commonwealth at the treaty and denied the possibility of republics being part of the Commonwealth, uh, although they changed their mind once uh, India became independent. So that's an example of a question where, on inspection, the citizens of the South should realize that making a concession here is relatively easy. I grant you that changing the flag and uh, changing the anthem will be more problematic. I don't think changing the preface to the Constitution will be particularly controversial. So there are things that the South can do to make it easier for the potential losers to accept that they will be part of uh, a Republic of Ireland. There's no implication uh, in anything I've said or any, anything that anybody has suggested that somehow the monarchy would be coming back. 4% of the population of the island are monarchist in some form or another. That's not a big issue. Uh, the big issue is, will people like David be willing to make minimal but significant, symbolically significant changes that will make it easier for Ulster Unionists to live contentedly in a united Ireland? Just to jump in on that, Hugh, if I can, but Brendan, isn't, isn't it the case that the data shows and this, to my mind, is one of the big headline findings of them, is that for an awful lot of people in the Republic, they're not willing to make those uh, concessions. Now, it may be that they change their minds in the future when the debate becomes more intense and more informed and more immediate. But as of now, the sort of united Ireland that many people in the South envisage is not really a united Ireland as such, but more a sort of a nationalist takeover. Well, I, I would say technically what they envisage is assimilation, um, them becoming like us. Um, that's what they want. Yeah, the, the, the West German, East German model. Right. And they were all Germans, though. <laughs> the, the, important, the important thing is that the model of a united Ireland in the heads of most people in the South is strongly socialized from our history books. Uh, it's Irish, it's Catholic, it's Gaelic. Um, and those, e even if you don't speak Irish, e even if you're no longer a Catholic, uh, having been descended from those groups is what defines you as Irish. And of course, there's a very significant proportion of the North who share that heritage, and that should never be forgotten. But in the case of United Ireland, what makes it different from Germany is accommodating a group with different ethnic origins, different imagined and different real ethnic origins, a different religious uh, background and a different uh, set of linguistic origins. So much more will have to be done to accommodate difference in a United Ireland than was the case in a United Germany. That's the, the, that's the measure of the task before us. But I do think uh, that though Pat is absolutely right to indicate resistance, uh, I'm not sure we can read off this survey and say that uh, people are, are completely inflexible on these matters. That has yet to be tested. And in principle, I'd like to do deliberative fora with my friend John Gary just to see how uh, baked in people's preferences are on these questions. That in relation to those, those things, John, can I ask you that the kind of issues there which Brendan is discussing, the, the ones that are symbolic, but symbolism is no less powerful for being symbolism. So flags and anthems and membership of the Commonwealth and various other things probably change status of the Irish language in, in, a, in a revised constitution and a, and, a, and a range of other things. They're one basket of things um, and then which are seen as being concessions to create an agreed new Ireland. And then there are other ones which are more, I suppose, structural and Pat mentioned the idea of retaining Northern Ireland as a political entity within a united Ireland, along with some of the structures of the Good Friday Agreement. Those two sets of things seem quite different to me. Maybe it's because I quite like the idea of the first and I would be concerned about the idea of the second, given that those structures don't seem to be working very well right now and I have limited faith in their ability to structure to function better into the future. Well, I guess the difference is how you suspect that people who don't want a united Ireland might in interpret the difference. And they might be impressed by symbolic changes, new anthem, new flag, or they might think that's a bit 
tokenistic and what we want is meaningful power, whether that's the, the maintenance of a devolved United Ireland in the structure or, for example, changing the manner in which governments form in Dublin in the integrated model to require um, the involvement of a unionist stroke British party in in, in the coalition with argue, with possibly veto powers. Um, so it's it, it, we don't have direct uh, data really from, from Protestants, the extent to which they would see this as symbolic stuff as perhaps ultimately tokenistic or not. I do think the discussion of David Carroll's question is, is fascinating because I strongly suspect it's the same David Carroll who wrote a letter into the Irish Times on Saturday, a couple of sentences of which are fantastic. He says... Um, when the opportunity arises, I would be thrilled to vote for the six counties to join our state. But if that is contingent on us diluting our Irishness or significantly altering the country we have built over the last century, I will regretfully decline and wait until a better proposal is put before us in due course. I suspect I am not alone. Now, I think that's a wonderful statement of the kind of thing Pat and Brendan were, were just talking about. And it puts the challenge up to advocates of a united Ireland, I think, to, to navigate this um, tightrope between, on the one hand, offering a way of uh, having a united Ireland which mitigates the fears of those who don't want to be in it, whether that's through symbolic change, flags and anthems, or meaningful political safeguards uh, with kind of framework or veto powers, all of that on the one hand. And on the other hand, thinking, how many Davids are there out there who are going to be absolutely appalled at this and will kind of either stay at home on the day or won't vote at all? Another way of saying this is how fragile or not is the is the 66% support rate in the South that we report for a United Ireland. Brenton, I think, was was suggesting it it's probably not fragile. It's a big, it's a big lead and with a bit of thinking and discussion, people will probably come around to accepting the reasonableness of quote-unquote concessions. But I think it's a, it's a bit of a tightrope. The way I analyse things in my book is consistent with what John has just said. I, I argue that the model of a United Ireland can't be one in which Southerners don't recognise themselves. They think correctly that the Republic is a success it's a political success. It's a commercial success. It's not perfect. It has uh, inadequate health provision. Um, it has a, a housing crisis. Uh, it's not a paradise, but it is a remarkable uh, and well-accomplished institutional success. And they're not going to uh, jeopardize that. And for that reason, I think they won't be interested in uh, establishing a federal government that would be vulnerable uh, to veto powers. They'll want to keep a, a Doyle air in, in Dublin where a decisive collective majority will be in, in charge of foreign policy and key uh, taxation policy. Those things, I think, won't be negotiable. All other things are negotiable, provided that the entity is a recognisable sovereign united Ireland. And the difficulty of statesmanship over the next decade is to try and work out what cultural compromises are feasible uh, and to see to see if people can be persuaded to accept them. Of course, it, it, it might be said that not all change needs to wait for a vote on unification. Indeed. Mark Fegan has a question here. What are your thoughts on northern representation in the Oireachtas and or the presidency? And do you believe there's any chance of Sinn Féin or any other party implementing this in the future. What do you think the chances of that are? So given previous um, intimations from the Supreme Court, there is no issue in Ireland deciding to give its diaspora the vote if it wishes to do so. Ireland is one of four countries in the European Union where the, those uh, who are non-resident lose their right to vote. And the reason for that is fairly straightforward. In Doyle Aaron elections, um, the number of citizens abroad could quite easily uh, be pivotal in every single election. That's why most discussion has focused on giving the diaspora the right to vote on the election of the president. What could not be done, I think, is to confine giving the right to vote uh, for the president to Northerners. It would have to extend to all people who have Irish citizenship who are non-resident in the Republic. I don't think that would be particularly controversial. As Pat says, the Taoiseach has the right to nominate um, 11 senators and has that 
power has often been used to appoint Northerners. I think that would be uncontroversial for Mary Lou Macdonald to do that. To recompose the, the Senate, uh, that would, I think, require constitutional amendments, though um, there may be uh, modifications of the panels that can occur through statutes. But I think much of this is moot because I think the uh, if there is to be a Sinn Féin-led government, it will be a coalition government. And the coalition partners will not be happy with arrangements that look as if they're expanding Sinn Féin voters, but not expanding other voters. So I do expect some movement on the question of the election of the presidency. Several parties have committed to that in the past. Whether it will go through is, is another matter, because there is a a genuine demographic and electoral danger of the diaspora deciding the president rather than the domestic population. And that, that would be a, uh, comparatively unusual. With a last question, it's a sort of a nerdy one, but it's a subject close to my heart. It's about being as transparent as possible with uh, data, whether it be in Irish Times opinion polls or, or on other polls. Uh, it, it came, it was directed to me by an anonymous uh, questioner on Twitter and asked, will the Irish Times release the data tables for the polls? I don't think we hold those data tables. I think it's Aaron's. Is that right? No, we hold them uh, jointly. And I have a uh, I have a general rule which I rarely break, which is I don't respond to anonymous uh, uh, accounts on Twitter or anywhere else, whether they uh, come uh, online or whether they come through my letterbox with the green biro written on them. <laughs> but um, uh, but we, we have said from the word go, the data is, is uh, held and owned jointly by Aaron's and the Irish Times. Um, we said from the word go that uh, when the series is concluded that we would make that publicly available. The series is now concluded. We will do that. We just need to sit down and figure out how to do it. Thanks, Pat. Brendan, you wanted to come in there? Yes. Um, the intention on the part of Aaron's, of course, is to cooperate with the Irish Times in making all the data publicly available. We intend to have a site uh, at Aaron's, which is uh, which will be posted on the Royal Irish Academy, where we will have a link to all the published Irish Times articles, and we will supply a Word document with all the basic tables. But for those who care about data in the proper uh, archived manner appropriate for the Academy, we will be deciding where the site will be for those who want to access the data using SPSS software. We have not decided on that location yet. That's good news, I think, for people who like that kind of thing. And I must say, I like that kind of thing myself. And I do think that that's best practice as well with this kind of research. So I'm very glad to hear that's happening. We will leave it there. Thanks very much indeed to John and to Brendan and to Pat for joining us today. This podcast was produced by Declan Conlon and it was engineered by JJ Vernon. We'll be back. We'll be discussing these issues and many more in weeks and months to come. I have no doubt I hope to see you all back here again at some point. But until the next time, thanks very much for listening. 